substance equals spin The propagandas win Stress feeding on my attention My countrymen, they love their fiction Words are now This way with good intentions Welcome to 1200, the independent politics and media podcast our second midweek episode of the week. We're getting crammed in as we head to election 2023. I'm joined by a special guest, CTU Chief Economist, Craig Rennie. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? All, all the better to have you on the line to uh, explain the economy to us. Um, I think it's something which has been really tough uh, for the electorate to grasp, even though there's far more discussion about some of the nuance and some of the detail of it in this election campaign, I th- I think far more than usual. Um, and I'll, I'll credit some of that to your interaction with the media um, this time around. You've been able to really carve a, a space out uh, for describing uh, the economy from a more progressive lens. There's still so much information flying around that you know, how do people pick and choose um, among those things? And how much does it just become about confirmation bias? But before we get into uh, that detail, the first thing I wanted to have a quick chat with you about is some of the the discourse of perception politics that immediately started happening in this space uh, as soon as the election campaign proper began uh, a month or so ago. And that was for members of the National Party to get very personal very quickly um, attacking some of your economic analysis. Um, I said just before the cast, I I feel that's pretty unprecedented. What has been your response to that? I mean, you seem to have kept your head down and just kept banging out your your Twitter threads and your analysis, but yeah. I mean, sort of the thank you. Um, It's it's very flattering. I, I basically... I stand on the shoulders of lots of other people who have done this work before me. Um, so, you know, people like um, Dr. Bill Rosenberg, who had the role of being chief economist before me, um, uh, um, others um, in, in other places who've, you know, who've, who've kept the, you know, what is a progressive economic voice going um, in New Zealand. And I'm very lucky to both have worked with them and, and to, and to, you know, to build hopefully on their platform. Um, the first thing I would say is that for many people, um, economics is scary. For many people, it's about money and it's about numbers and it involves mathematics. And to them, that's like, these, these are three things they all hate. And um, all together in one tasty sandwich that they go, oh, and then you get august, clever sounding people in suits on television saying, mm, well, the OCR track must move because otherwise, you know, mortgage rates and the two year bond yield will invert. And, mm, and everyone nods sagely as if that actually means anything. Um, and so the, you know, people switch off and they just assume that when someone who's an expert says something to them, it must be true. The key thing about economics is that it's an art, not a science. And it's, it's all about interpretation of data and people's honest, honest interpretation of data can differ between honest people and different ends and different results can differ between different people. And so as a consequence for us um, on the left, we've got a job of making it simple and making it honest. And that's all I try to do. Now, when various um, characters from various other places try to criticize me or, or, you know, or to say, you know, oh, you would say that. Well, yes, I would, because that's my analysis. That's my opinion. Um, you know, when they say, but you never criticize the other side. Um, well, fine. Then the floor is open. Fill your boots. 
You can, you know, uh, Twitter is an open platform. You can say what you like. So my job is not to um, interact, um, you know, with, with people in that space. Um, I forget which um, US president said, um, never wrestle a pig. Um, you know, um, you'll both end up, um, you know, and the pig likes it. Um, you know, so put out what you have, be honest, um, you know, uh, uh, show your analysis. And then when people throw brickbats at you, that's just a sign that they're, they're upset that you're upending their economic narrative and their story that they actually want to sell. How do you think we get past that? Uh, kind of, if we're talking on, on the progressive uh, side of politics as a whole, because it was, it was it's pretty fast and furious as soon as some of those uh, numbers came out from you. Um, and I'm not going to say the media kind of got in on it, but we definitely facilitated it. Oh, I'm very loath to criticize the media for, for, for two reasons. One, there aren't enough of us on our side. Right. And, and, you know, so, so, um, you know, the, um, the, 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 the jur- journalists know that I may disagree with them. That's, mm-hmm. that, that's fine. The point is to prove them, to prove to them what I'm saying is correct. And that's my only role is to say, here's the data. Here's my analysis. You may agree or disagree with it, but the analysis adds up and it makes coherent logical sense. You may well take a different opinion. And that's fine. There's a, there's a forum for opi- ideas and opinions. Fantastic. Um, when someone says, um, you know, um, oh, but you would say that you're the CTU, or you would say that because you're a lefty, or you would say that because you know you used to work for Grant Robertson. <laughs> That's fine. You, I can't deny that. That is all of these things are true. But don't you know? Uh, can we can we go beyond that a little bit and then look at the analysis itself? Can we look at your analysis? Can we say what is it that actually for you? And helps to explain your worldview, helps to explain where we are, where we are, explain the problems in New Zealand society that we want to solve. And this is my view of what's going on right now. And let's have that conversation. But it's just time and patience. And people are angry and people want answers. Twitter and other forms of social media don't lend themselves to nice debates about uh, you know, meanings and, and, and values and numbers and other things. They led themselves to sound bites talking about tell me, tell me, tell me. And so you've just got to look through that and consistently and honestly provide your message and provide your story and your truth about what's going on in the world. I think that's been a huge, played a huge role in, in some of the cut through you've had as well, because often there's been this vacuum around the stuff that, uh, a range of different actors are kind of rush in to fill and, You've been uh, the person in the city. You've been the group who's been at the forefront of delivering these really detailed analyses this time around. Was there a strategy around that? Um, is it something you'd plan to kind of ramp up uh, as this uh, discourse got heavier? I've always been um, a big fan of the idea that New Zealand needs a, a progressive organisation who is prepared to do the the research work and the and the analytical work to be able to convincingly portray an alternative universe, an alternative type of economy, to be able to tell a story that um, isn't just the one that is told to us all the time. I come from the UK, as my accent probably gives away. And um, and I remember the 80s and the 90s, where we were told, Tina, 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 there is no alternative. There's always an alternative. Everything in the economy is a choice. Everything that we do in the economy is a choice. We just have to show what those choices are and how they will make a difference to people in their lives. And so I've always been really keen, keen, keen since joining the CTU to, to lift 
that conversation with the public, to help put more information out to the public and to actually make it a conversation rather than just, hello, here are a bunch of numbers that make me look clever. It's, hello, here's a conversation about what these things mean. But importantly, what do you think? And how can we then go from there and build some consensus about what a truly progressive economy looks like and the benefits that would bring to, to workers and, to, and to, to companies and to the economy generally that we're missing out on because we hear that Tina, 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 there is no alternative and there always is. I think there has been a huge shift in the way this has been talked about, um, especially in the last few years, just in contrast to New Zealand politics in general, and that's from both the left and the right where there's been this really laser focus on uh, balance books and getting debt down and the surplus and um, et cetera, et cetera. And just not as much talk about, okay, but what do we get out of this? You know, you mentioned stuff like uh, the wellbeing budget, lofty ideals, but what what's behind that and how do we bring the electorate along with that rather than using it as a branding exercise just in the campaign? It's, it's a great question. Um, you know, um, I, I used to work at a branch of government in the UK. I won't say where, um, for to hide the innocent. Um, but um, and there used to be a there used to be a picture on the wall that used to say beatings will continue until morale improves. And that's often how when we talk about balanced budgets and fiscal rectitude and you know and austerity, austerity will continue until it works because eventually it will work. Honestly, and if it doesn't work, it's because we haven't tried it hard enough. And and if you tried, if you tried it a bit harder, if you believed in it a bit more, then it would work then. And we have all of this evidence over the past 40 years in New Zealand and around the world that these very orthodox uh, neoliberal approaches and just liberal approaches to the economy don't deliver great outcomes for the vast majority of workers. And that's what's important are actually outcomes for those workers. So, for example, since 1991, in every year since 1991, labour productivity has outstripped wage growth. What that means is the proportion of the economy going to wa- wages and salaries shrinks a little bit every year. So right now, that's worth about $6.50 an hour between the, between the gap between the growth in labour productivity and the growth in wages. Why is that important? It's because that's money that's going somewhere else. If, if we go back in time from 1991, back to 1908, which is about when I can start the statistics in New Zealand, they're all, they're, they match. They're identical. If I look at the, um, 90, uh, um, in the mid 1950s, um, unemployment in New Zealand was 28. That's not a percentage. Percentage. It's the number, the number of people who were on the job, on the unemployment benefit famously was two. And we had lots of, you know, uh, we had essentially full employment right now. We've got people complaining that 3% unemployment is full employment. I put it to you, it's not full employment. And this is something that's like started to be a, I'm not even sure what to call it. It's a really punitive line um, coming out of the right in particular um, and out of a range of economists saying, okay, we need to make more people unemployed. The relationship between those two things um, is a thing called the Phillips curve, started by Bill Phillips, who was a New Zealander, a New Zealand economist. And he looked at the relationship between unemployment and inflation over a period of time. So there was a relationship between the two. And basically put, if unemployment is too low, inflation goes up. If you want inflation to come down, unemployment must go up. Very simple relationship. The data we've had since then shows that relationship doesn't hold. There are periods when unemployment is very high and inflation is very high. There are periods when unemployment is very low and inflation is very low. There's not this neat relationship, but it's a long-held belief in economics, 
that these things occur. And so therefore, we put the interest rate up to try and put the brakes on the economy. That puts unemployment up because there's less investment. People lose their jobs. People spend less money. That therefore means there's fewer dollars chasing goods. Therefore, inflation comes down. Now, that holds true if the inflation is domestically generated. Which is what National have been trying to run out as a line, um, even as recently as the debates uh, the other night. And the problem is, when inflation is oil, when inflation is shipping costs, when inflation is building material costs because you're having to rebuild several parts of the North Island because of a cyclone, because you're having to do lots of things, you can move the interest rate around, but the OPEC countries who control the oil price, bless them, aren't looking at the New Zealand Reserve Bank interest rate and saying, oh, well, we'll you know, best, <laughs> best rein it in a bit, lads, because you know the RBNZ is going to put the interest rate up. They don't care. And so as a consequence, it has no effect. The only way it has an effect is in a second round effect. And it has to work so much harder than doing it for domestically generated inflation. That's a real challenge. And when oil, as it is right now, is heading back up to $100 a barrel for West Texas Intermediate, that um, that's, you know, using that tool doesn't work. And so that narrative of, um, you know, um, the economy's out of control, where, you know, the government's dealt with it very badly, it's just not true. And importantly, that story of being off track and that somehow the economy's off track, that the, the evidence that we have there really doesn't support that as a suggestion. And that's one of the main things we want to talk about today was this discourse that's kind of started uh, from the beginning of the year around the incoming recession, um, then into the technical recession, um, and has now moved past that to uh, we're not in recession, we weren't in recession, but people feel like we were, (laughs) Um, which has been really difficult to stomach kind of at, at one step removed, you know, I'm we're independent media, we do analysis, but we're not actually involved with the way that this is uh, reported on or that politicians talk about it. You're saying there's this, this bigger conversation around, you know, what the economy looks like. Do you want to quickly uh, yeah, go over yeah. that before we get into those narratives? Well, these two things are linked, right? So when we talk about a recession, technically, a recession is two quarters of consistent negative growth, i.e. a decline in the output of the economy. Um, that measure was created in the mid-1970s. It's actually, there is no official definition of what it means to be in recession. There are a lot of these kind of like received uh, knowledges, it feels like. The US uses a completely different measure called the National Bureau of Economic Research measure, where a bunch of wise people get in a room and have a look and then declare a recession or not. There's another measure called the SARM index, which looks at the unemployment rate and says, actually, are you in recession or not? The important thing to remember is, Being in recession or not doesn't help. Having that piece of information doesn't tell you anything. It doesn't provide any new policy tools. It doesn't 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 give you anything new, yeah, that you couldn't already work out. It just tells you something and makes you makes you feel confident in your knowledge that things are not heading in a way that you might want them to be. Well, so what? The important thing is what do you do? How do you manage that response? Celebrating or not celebrating being in a recession or not being in a recession is kind of meaningless. And I'll give you a practical example of that in the real world. In the UK, in the mid-80s, we had a thing called the Lawson boom. Nigel Lawson, who was then the Chancellor of the Exchequer, engineered a huge boom in the economy um, in London, in house prices, in financial services, um, and the south of of England, gangbusters. One of the fastest growing economies in the world, probably at the time. The rest of the UK, desperate. Um, You had, um, you know, the north of England, huge recessions with steel, coal, 
um, you know, shipbuilding, chemical works, all disappearing instantly. Um, solid, secure, um, often male full-time employment, well-paid full-time employment, disappearing overnight, and towns having no economic future. But on average, the UK looked good. Now, are you telling me it wasn't a recession in various places? And the point is this, is that actually when we talk about the economy, we should be talking about what what, are, what is it we want out of the economy? The economy isn't a thing. The economy is just a bunch of measures that we use to understand um, output, unemployment, uh, growth, wages, you know, uh, productivity, and those are all nice and exciting things to know. But it's just a tool to say, well, what kind of society do we want? What kind of, you know, uh, uh, what kind of living standard do we want for us and for our kids? What kinds of things do we want to have now and in the future? And so um, when we talk about these things together, that's the important question to be asking. And I think, unfortunately, in New Zealand, it's a question that doesn't get asked a lot. What kind of economy do we want to have? What kind of economy do we want to leave for our children? What kind? When we talk about debt, great, let's talk about debt. Let's talk about public debt, private debt. Debt is exactly the same as liability. They're just two sides of the same coin. Now, when we build a hospital, like Dunedin Hospital, I can talk about the public debt consequences. It's about $2 billion. Yeah, It's going to cost to rebuild it. Great. It's a lot of money, but we need to rebuild it. What I can't talk to you about is the liability, i.e. what we should have been spending. And that hospital needed rebuilding 10 years from now, uh, 10 years ago. What that means is that we haven't, we've had, we've had worse outcomes for patients. People have got well a lot less quickly than they should have. Um, they've been at work less quickly than they should have been if there'd been a nice modern hospital there. And as a consequence, we measure one side because we can, and we don't measure the liability because we choose not to. But we know that exists, right? Like, and I think, you know, we've it's been coming to the fore during this term, um, discussion about the in- infrastructure deficit, um, mm. whether that's in the health sector, whether that's uh, the pipes um, in Wellington um, or elsewhere. It's become a lot more become confronting in the cyclone. On- on the streets, become visible on yeah. the streets there. You know, and things like the cyclone just sort of expose that underinvestment that we've had for, for decades. You know. So what's stopping it from shifting? What's stopping the stopping the conversation from actually shifting? Or is it just it's gonna take a little bit longer to, to get there? Well, two things. One of which is where um undoubtedly things are tough right now for a lot of people. Inflation is high, the cost of living is high. And if you then say to people, Oh, guess what? We also need to spend a lot of money on stuff that you don't care about, like the pipes in the ground. It's like, go, no, thank you. I don't want, I want the other guy who's promising me a tax cut. So mm-hmm. it's a really hard sell in the middle of that particular crisis, which is why it's important to be honest and consistent in, in, in these spaces. But two, um, it's because some of these um, issues have taken 30 years to get to this point and they're now at breaking point and we can't, we can't put them off any longer. I'm in Wellington, the Venice of the South, not because it's beautiful, but because occasionally the streets float, uh, where, you know, various parts of the pipework just gives up and we see it on the street. Auckland, just to the north of us, has what could best be described as an, as an unfortunate po- uh, new pool, um, uh, um, you know, filled with raw sewage where the pipework's collapsed. Again, this, the pipework that's collapsed is a hundred years old. Mm. The challenge we have is that those boring, unsexy, long-term maintenance problems, be they in water, be they in housing, be they in the public estate, they need filling. That's how you end up with a $210 billion infrastructure gap. But because we don't measure that gap consistently, no one's there saying, hang on, you can't have a tax cut because if you don't, have, if you have a tax cut, you can't afford to pay the bills 
and you're just going to kick that to your kids in the future. Remember, when people tell you that we can't have debt because your kids are going to have to pay your debt, that's exactly the same thing as yeah. if you won't pay the bills, your kids are going to have to pay the bills. And thankfully, we're having more of that conversation. Thankfully, we're having a more honest, I think, conversation in that space. The challenge is to keep that going and to keep that long-term story going and how we're going to help fill those gaps in the future. So I think we're just a, about a week out from news that we're out out of the technical recession that didn't really happen. Mm-hmm. How did how did that come about? How did, like, in your role as a chief economist, how did you kind of view that? How do you analyse the, the way that developed? So we were in a recession by, um, a frankly, vanishingly small amount. So um, it was 0.46% decline, which when rounded went to 0.5, which when rounded went to a four. Right. Okay. Um, how did we end up there? Well, again, we've got this slightly odd definition of two consecutive quarters of decline. It's fairly meaningless, but Julia Shishkin, who invented it, God bless you, that's what it is. Uh, it's well inside the measurement error for these areas. And that's the problem is that when people put it down as gospel truth, we don't know. There's a large measurement error each time and it's just inside that area. And so um, when we talked about it, we uh, a lot of economists who said, oh, this is bad. We must do something. We should have been a bit more um, how we call it, circumspect about actually how we were reporting um, um, in that area, as we should now when we say, oh, we're not in recession. Well, actually, we've got flat growth. It's zero. If it's revised again, it may go back into recession. But the point is, um, you know, uh, when we talk about it, we should be talking about, well, actually, again, what does that mean in terms of people's lives? Well, unemployment is really low. There are more jobs than there ever have been and more people working longer and in more hours than um, there have been. For a lot of people, it won't feel like a, re- like a classic recession, but the cost of living is very high. And as a consequence, you may be feeling very stretched, but that's not the same thing as a recession. And so that's the challenge we've got to communicate that bundle of things together in a, in a really straightforward way which is why again to me it's actually not helpful to talk about a recession it doesn't communicate anything new to the listener all it communicates is worry we don't we shouldn't be communicating that worry to the to, to the listener because there's actually no reason to be worried about that number right but to, and i guess it becomes a vibe leader right um, and when we're talking about the vibe of the economy, uh, which has now become how we address these things politically, it's using that kind of language that leads us in those directions. It, it absolutely is. I mean, economics is called the dismal science for a reason. Um, you know, I can professionally frighten people from 250 paces by using a series of numbers. So what? Right. Um, you know, so we can talk about, oh, you know, uh, um, interest rates are going up. There's a huge uh, a current account deficit. There is. Um, you know, that we're bought, we're, we're importing lots more than we're exporting. This is true. That, uh, you know, that the currency is being affected. This is also true. But, um, you know, uh, are, are these issues structural? I.e., are they going to be here for a really long time and we're going to do something enormous to deal with it? Or are these issues cyclical? Is there something in the economy that actually is going up and down and causing that change? Now, as ever, it's a little from column A and a little from column B, but um, the column A part, um, the structural part, is a function of where we were previously building strengths in the economy. And that was in tourism, dairy, timber, the commodities that we export overseas. Why is that important? Because actually, if we went from volume 
volume exports in those industries to value exports in those industries, we'd be a lot less exposed to the commodity cycle. We can control some of those issues. It just requires investment, both from the private sector and the public sector, to get there. Some of the cyclical stuff in terms of oil pricing, shipping pricing, uh, COVID stripping a lot of tourists away um, from the country. Well, some of those are going to return. Some of those are just going to come back naturally. But the best thing we can do is actually to minimize our exposure to those things where we're very sensitive. That means insulating homes. So we can, we spend less energy insulating our houses and people have more money in their pockets. And we put fewer kids in hospital with diseases caused by having cold, damp homes. And um, we can look at having more EVs on the road, more charging stations, um, better uh, uh, um, uh, renewable energy generation. And again, we reduce our exposure to oil. And if we reduce our exposure to oil, we reduce the, the delta, as we pretentiously call it in economics, the change in pricing that occurs when the oil goes up and down. And that's to the benefit of everyone. And that's before we get to the climate benefits, before we get to the, the, the economic resilience benefits. And so there's a whole bunch of things we can do, but it requires not cutting spending on beneficiaries. That that doesn't have any impact in that side. It doesn't make any difference. And um, it doesn't say if I was to fire 15,000 public sector workers, then inflation would go down. It might do just because there are 15,000 fewer households with less income. But it doesn't tackle the structural issues. We've got too much of our economy in the wrong thing or the cyclical issues where we're overexposed to prices that go up and down. These are distractions from the main problems. And it's these long term problems we should be tackling, not the short term stuff. Fantastic. That's put so simply. Um, and in terms that we don't often get a chance to see, as you're kind of uh, outlining at the start, you know, we get a lot of talk about the OCR, um, the official cash rate or number goes up uh, kind of dialogue, but very little about, okay, how do we enact solutions here and what impact will those have on on workers? At, at its heart, politics is about the division of resources. Um, it's about who gets what and when. At its heart, Economics is about the person standing behind the politician saying, say that people or that people, right? And that's how we end up choosing where we get to. Um, now, uh, we can all make choices about where, who suffers from uh, um, uh, inflation and how that cost is distributed. Profits for many companies have been higher. Energy companies are making huge windfall gains. Banks are making enormous windfall gains. Workers are being told they need to rein in their wage expectations and take take a bit of a cut, take a bit of a breather, because that will help manage inflation. No one's saying profits should be managed on the same basis. Why not? Because the people who benefit are different to the people who pay. And so who wins and who loses is essentially the choice in economics. And it's a choice we can make. Yeah. It's not, it's not natural. It's a thing we can choose to do. And so to me, that's, um, you know, uh, you know, one of the things I want us all um, to think about. And if you take nothing else away um, um, from this conversation today, New Zealand, according to the World Bank, is the best country in the world to be in business, where it's always us or Singapore that's number one and number two. The previous prime minister had as her, um, you know, her catchphrase, I want this to be the best country in the world to be a child. And that's a great aspiration um, for any leader to be, and one I wholeheartedly support. But for the CTU, the way to do that, and for me as an economist, the way to do that is just for this to be the best country in the world to be a worker. Because if this is the best country in the world to be a worker, you've got the best communities, you've got the best families, 
and that will lead to being the best country in the world for your child. So I not only want this to be the best country in the world to be in business, I want this to be the best country in the world to be a worker. And our entire economic policy should be guided by how do we make this the best country in the world to be a worker? And those things aren't mutually exclusive either, right? Like Absolutely. Absolutely. If you've got strong firms with, with who are exporting, who are leading innovation and value adds, who are building and doing things that other countries want to do and get their hands on, those are also great jobs. Those are also well-paying jobs. Those are also high-skilled jobs, in-demand jobs. And those are also jobs that are going to be here tomorrow. And when we look at those countries that we that we aspire to be like, like Denmark, Germany, Sweden, those are economies chock full of jobs like those, increasingly um, high-skilled, increasingly high-tech, increasingly resilient. They're not jobs selling coffees to each other um, in low-value tourism outlets. They're not jobs where we sell houses to each other and hope that we're not the last person holding the debt at the end. We are, um, you know, we that's where we need to move towards. And whenever we're asked ourselves a question, does this help build an economy where this is the best country in the world to be a worker? That should be our guiding light as to what we then do in terms of our economic policy. We're just about ready to wrap this up. Uh, but just quickly, what do you see on the horizon over the next couple of weeks? We're heading into the selection of very big uh, choices in terms of what the political parties say what they want the outcomes to be, uh, even if there's some feeling in the electorate that there's not much difference between the two major parties. You know, there are some very clear statements that have been made by by both sides around what their values are. You know, as an economist coming from that that workers' lens, what do you see potentially happening here? Can I just give you one example um, of this? There are some parties in Parliament um, uh, who um, want to retain the newly established and um, fair pay agreements system, which is a system which provides for minimum protections for workers in uh, in terms of their pay, in terms of the hours that they work, in terms of their training and development opportunities. And they do that via a bargained arrangement between workers' representatives and employer representatives. And we do that in areas particularly where workers have extremely little voice or agency in what they're trying to do. There are some parties who want to get rid of that because they believe it's an impediment on free enterprise or it's an impediment on creating the kind of, as they put it, flexible labour market that will lead to um, economic security for everyone. Now, I put it to you like this. We've tried the flexible labour market experiment over and over and over again. If it worked, it would have worked by now. Instead, we need to move to systems like Australia, like European countries, like advanced economies elsewhere, where you can bargain um, through a fair pay agreement system, a sectoral bargaining system, which is what um, not just the CTU has called for in New Zealand, but the OECD has called for in New Zealand. The IMF has called for in New Zealand, which we won a case at the International Labour Organization, which is a UN organization, for not so long ago. It tells you about priorities. Whose priorities do those parties have in mind? when they're creating their policies and whose priorities will they have in their heads when there's a future emergency, when there's a future disaster, when push comes to shove and money has to be spent, who are the people they're going to favour? And to me, that's supporting or not supporting fair pay agreements is a really clear sign of who's those parties support and what they're likely to do. And when, you, when someone tells me, oh, it doesn't make any difference, 
these parties are all the same, you know, they're all going to, you know, they're, they're, they're all just looking out for themselves, they'll say whatever they like. Sure, it's wise to be cynical. It's wise to not believe everything everyone says. History tells us that that's the case. But there is a world of difference between a universe in some parties where fair pay agreements, industrial relations reform, growing a more productive, a more sustainable, and a more inclusive economy is your priority, and just growing the economy, making not caring about where, that, where those monies end up, and having a much more laissez-faire approach to whether or not you're going to get the education your kids need, just the hospital services that you need, that the public service will be there when you want them. There's a really big difference, and there's actually a fundamental choice at this election about the direction of travel for New Zealand. So vote, always vote. Please vote, go out and vote, but vote carefully because at this election, we're making a choice that will have an impact, not just for three years, but potentially for the next 30. Perfect. I think that's a great place to, to leave it. Thank you so much for joining us today, Craig. Thank you for having me on. If people want to find you elsewhere, uh, where can they do that? Uh, so I'm, I work for the CTU. Um, I, I'm, uh, I work, uh, my, my work is all published on the CTU's website, ct, uh, nzctu.org.nz. And uh, if they want to get in touch with me, my contact details uh, are there. Um, if they want to talk to me about, you know, what they're thinking in the economy, what they, what their view of a good economy looks like, how we could together build a better, a better story and a better picture. And importantly, a different way of communicating that to people. Let's have that conversation. Fantastic. I'll drop that in the summary as well, along with all our other links that we always drop. Uh, one of those this time around is the Triple the Vote link, um, a campaign out of Action Station. Uh, trying to engage people to go out, find two friends, uh, and get them to vote. Uh, as easy as that. I'll drop the website link for that in the summary as well. Check it out. Uh, get involved. Let's get as many people out there voting as possible. Uh, as Craig has just said, really important election to be making careful choices about the direction of New Zealand uh, going into the next uh, couple of decades. That's been another midweek episode of One of 200. We'll catch you on the weekend for current events. Amongst the people every day And this vindictive, forgetful fucking rain